Our text for this morning is Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 3. And this is God's word for us here today. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Will you pray with me? Father, you are good, you are just, you are holy. And we praise you. Our text today speaks of those who would challenge your justice and your goodness and reminds us of salvation and hope. Lord, I would pray this day you will accomplish your will in us. Save souls. Remind others of your goodness. Convince us of your justice. Do your will. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I've tried the religious thing. I've tried the church thing. It didn't work for me. I'm going to guess that if you've ever tried to invite somebody to church or share the gospel with somebody, you've heard something like that spoken. You ever hear anybody say something like that to you before? Yeah. Well, as we try to share Jesus, there's people that will give us that idea that, hey, I gave the Christian thing a shot, but it really didn't ring my bell. It's, it's almost as if they're saying they gave Christianity a taste test. You know, this is something I understand, taste test. Ed and I will go do taste tests at taco places around town. We're, we're trying our best to find for you the greatest uh, in Vegas. And so you should talk to us about that. But we are doing our dead level best to help you guys to know we're here to serve. 
But there's other people that look at the faith like they can give it a taste test and it not suit them. Now, why in the world would anybody think that that's the way to respond to Jesus? Sad thing is, there's a lot of people who are experimenting with churches and religions, trying it on and then rejecting it because there's some Christians out there who are presenting the gospel to them that way. They come up to somebody and they tell them about, oh, the love of God is so great and God can make your marriage wonderful and God can fix your finances and on and on they go. And the people who hear the sales pitch say, hey, I'm going to give Jesus a go. Good marriage sounds good. More money sounds great. And if it works out, that's awesome. But if it doesn't work out, they're willing to try the next religion, the next philosophy. The next self-help strategy. But can I tell you, the Bible never, not ever, gives us the notion of playing around with God to find out if God fits what we want God to be or do for us. God does not come to us and tell us to mold Him into whatever image or shape we think we would like best. Instead, God reveals to us who he is and shows us where we stand before him and God offers us forgiveness, forgiveness on his terms. And here you might be thinking, I would never be so brash as to think that God has to meet my terms. Right? You churchy people. But if we're honest as Christians, don't we have to admit that from time to time we can find ourselves disappointed with the way things are going? The world might seem to us like God is not doing what we think he ought to do. Wickedness appears to thrive. Righteousness is opposed. Good guys get the short end of the stick. Bad guys get rich. Or even if you're more honest, you will just point out the fact that you personally hurt. Right? Our lives don't go the way that we want. We think God surely would not let us have one more hard day, one more conflict, one more loss. And the losses come. And in our hearts, we can doubt, we can struggle, we can, if we are not careful, let ourselves feel like this faith thing is not all it was advertised to be. Don't be shocked at that kind of thinking, by the way. You know, it's all over the Bible. You ever, you ever study the wisdom literature? You know what the wisdom books are? Job Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, right? If you study those three books, you will see them look at the world from three different directions, right? How many of you love reading some Proverbs? Two of you do. Okay, church, there's a book in the Bible called Proverbs I'd like many of you to start reading. Proverbs tells you how things generally work out when, they're, when things are going rightly. You ever notice that? Right? Evil's punished, 
Faithfulness is rewarded. Hard workers get up early and they earn their fortune and lazy people get nothing. Now, is that generally true? Generally, yes. Is that always true in the, in the day-to-day? Is that true that every person who has money is because they have it because they're super hard workers? No. Okay. What about the book of Ecclesiastes? The book of Ecclesiastes, we have Solomon struggling with the fact that, man, evil people are getting everything they want and good people are getting nothing. And then Job, from the other angle, says, look, Here's a really good guy. He looks like he's doing everything right and he is suffering terribly. In the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, James, Peter, and John all promised the followers of Jesus that this life is going to be hard. They all indicate trials and persecutions or what believers face. They all tell us, hey, you know what? This is not like physical Israel in Leviticus. You are not promised health and financial success just because you obey Jesus. By the way, doesn't it amaze you that Israel was promised, hey, if you just obey these few commands, I will bless you till you can't hold it all? And they're like, nah. But the question arises, and here's the title of today's message. Is God worth following? If we do a a cost-benefit analysis, are we going to find that Christianity is actually worth it? And I want to tell you, following the Lord is most certainly worth it, but I've got to be honest enough to tell you that that assessment requires a genuinely eternal point of view. So come with me this morning. We're going to walk through the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4 of Malachi. And there we're going to ask the question, is God worth following? And we're going to see that if you have eyes only on this world, it's hard to see why God would be worth it. But if you set your eyes on forever, on eternity, you're going to see that the rewards of following God show us that it is completely worth it to give our all for the glory of God. We'll find four points in our passage for today. Point number one, let the world's darkness drive you to desire God's justice. Let the world's darkness drive you to desire God's justice. How many of you miss your desk right now? Sorry about that. 13 to 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, How have we spoken against you? You've said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. In those three verses, God offers the last question and answer dialogue in the book of Malachi. If you remember from the very beginning of this book, God has been telling the people that they're doing wrong things to sin before him. And God anticipates their objections to him. God has already told these people, you've doubted my love, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. They've neglected his worship, chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. They've ignored his word, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. They have broken their marriage vows, chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. They've accused God of being unjust, chapter 2, 17 to 3, verse 6. They've stolen God's offerings, chapter 3, verse 6 through 12. 
What more could God say that these people are doing? Well, here in 313 to 15, the Lord is clear that he knows the way that many of these people are speaking out, grumbling, complaining, defaming him. We saw a hint of it in 217 because they said, where is the God of justice? God doesn't do justice, they say. They're questioning God's goodness. They're questioning how God responds to the evil of the world. But here in this section, the speech of the people against God, it is even worse. They are actually speaking words that are attacks on God. Malachi has saved the harshest words of the people for last. God says the people are speaking against him. The people, as usual in this book, are like, what? How do we do that? And God says, you're saying it's not worth the effort to follow God. It's not worth the effort to obey God's commands. It's not worth the effort to repent of sin. The people are arguing, hey, evil people are prospering without being punished, so why shouldn't we get into the action too? Consider that phrase, it is vain to serve God. That's what some of the people are saying. When a thing is vain, it is empty, it is meaningless, it is useless. My Old Testament professor used to say that the word vanity, when he thinks of it, he thinks of soap bubbles. There's just nothing there. It's gone. Again, I asked about Proverbs. How many of you have studied Ecclesiastes? Solomon does a little mental exercise in the book of Ecclesiastes. He wonders what would life be all about without the knowledge of God. And Solomon's answer repeatedly in the book of Ecclesiastes is that without the, the knowledge of God, life is meaningless. Without God and his justice at the end, life is worthless. Solomon repeatedly says that all is vanity, even vanity of vanities. At least that's what he said until he looked at the end. And then he remembered that in the end, God will set all things right in eternity. But right here, imagine a person suggesting that serving God is a vanity. It's empty, it's meaningless. This person is seeing life not from an eternal perspective, not from a forever perspective, but they're looking at life from the perspective of someone who cannot imagine that there's anything past this life. They're speaking like atheists. They're, they're suggesting that there is no value in following the Lord because we're not getting what we want in the life that we're living. If God is not setting things right to match their understanding, they think God is either wrong or simply irrelevant. And the conclusion of these people is that there is no value in trying to obey. There's no reason to mourn over your sin or repent of your sin, they think, why in the world should I go through the difficulties associated with obeying God's laws? But they look around and they're like, man, the wicked are bouncing happily from success to success with no judgment of God on them at all. Wicked people put God to the test and they survive. The wicked speak vile things. They perform vile acts and they just keep rolling around on their money. And some of you here this morning if you're honest, hear the complaint of these people, and there is a temptation to agree. Some of you might let yourself think from time to time, deep down inside, 
that it's easier not to follow God. The religious life does not always feel like it's worth the effort. God does not always seem like he's punishing the wicked for what they do. So why not jump into the fun? Can I warn you, that view, that position, it's as old as the Garden of Eden and it's as dangerous as the devil's first lie to humanity. Of course it's true. Things in this world aren't right. You know that's true, don't you? Sometimes it looks like evil people get away with evil deeds. Sometimes it appears like righteous people, God-fearing people, get only hardships in life. But let me encourage you to think about this differently than the way the folks of Malachi's day did. Let that darkness of the world drive you to deeply desire the justice of God. Remember, believers, God is truly God. God created the universe. God works all things for his glory. In Proverbs 16, verse 4, the Bible says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for a day of trouble. In Isaiah 45, 5-7, Bible says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Maybe the familiar one to you is Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's word tells you and me that God is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of God's control. God never has as his motive evil. He never purposes evil. Yet God will allow evil men to do evil things that God's ultimate purpose may be accomplished. God is not the author of sin. But why? Why does God do what he does? We know, don't we? God created the universe to display his glory. We talked about this in Sunday school today. God created humanity for the sake of his glory. You exist for the glory of God. God has shaped human history for his glory. Thus, everything that exists, good things and evil things, exist to the glory of God. What do good things highlight? The goodness of God. What do evil things remind us of? God's not like that. And God will do justice. None of us are ever truly gonna, so long as we live in this world, be able to fully understand why it is that good things happen to bad people and why bad things happen to people that look like they're good people. 
You can't get it completely. I get it. And when we see that stuff happen, you've got two options, friends. You can either do what the majority did in Malachi's day. You can do what people do today. And that is you can turn your back on God and give up because it's not fair. Or there's a better alternative. As you see the hurt and the pain and the sorrow and the strife and the suffering in this world, let it bring you to your knees before God and let it focus your heart not on justice in this life, but let it focus your heart on eternal justice. Let it call you to pray as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guys, We've got to learn to let our pain drive us toward heaven. Do you hurt? You got headaches? You got a disease you don't want? You got a body that's falling apart? Let that remind you you're not home yet. Now, yes, Work to make as much in this world right as you can. Show the world God reigns. But let pain and sickness and struggle make you long for God and long for heaven. Second point. Remember God remembers you. Remember God remembers you. Look at 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a, as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Isn't it cool when you see us learn what something we ought to do and then the next verse tells you that some people in the Bible actually did what they were supposed to do? They did what I just told you to do. Some people feared God. Some people esteemed God's name. Some people did not let the pain of this sin-soaked world drive them away from God. Some people let the hardships of this life drive them to desperation for God. And those people, they got together and they committed themselves together that they together would follow God. And God, for his part, remembered them. By the way, think about this for a second. What do we call a group of people who've decided that they will fear God, so they covenant together to come together to serve God even in the middle of a hostile world. What do you call that? That's the church. That's us. And God says, I will never, not ever forget one of my own. God doesn't just remember those who come to him and, and serve him through the hard times. God speaks about their future. God says that those kind of people, God says, I will make them my treasured possession. That takes you all the way back to when God first made the covenant with the nation of Israel in Genesis 19, before the, the giving, or sorry, Exodus 19, before the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 19.5, God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God told Israel, 
Y'all obey me, you follow me, you fear me, you serve me in the good times and the bads. You guys are going to be my treasured possession. They will be the true Israel of God. In verse 16, Malachi tells us God made a list. That's not the only time in Scripture we see God making a list. Book of Life, other particular lists happen in the Bible all the time. God likes to use record-keeping language to show us that he keeps track of who is his. And God doesn't forget even one of his children. Even if you're having hard times, especially when you're having hard times, the Lord is not unaware of you. He remembers you. And God says he will preserve those who fear him. He will keep them near to himself. He will keep them dear to himself. And there will be a clearly understood distinction between the ones who follow God and the ones who don't. A day is coming when God will make sure that everyone, everything in the universe sees there's a difference between those under the blessing of God and those under the judgment of God. So let me ask, I mean, is the world we live in often ugly? Yeah, it can be really ugly, can't it? Can following God actually be the harder choice? Oh, yeah. But let me tell you, God's paying attention. He knows who is his. So what do you want to be? Going to be on God's side or against him? Fear God. Honor his name. That is what the people did whose names God wrote down. Now before we move on to this to see what God's going to do with those on his list of those who are his and those who are not, just stop and remember this. Remember God remembers you. Whether you've got it easy or whether you've got it hard, whether you feel safe or whether you currently feel forsaken, God remembers you. Just because you don't feel God's presence does not mean God has left you behind. Oh my goodness, do you need to know that? I will say it again. Just because you don't feel God's presence does not mean God has left you behind. Don't you dare judge your life by how you feel. Your feelings are untrustworthy. God sees. God knows. God cares. If you've come to Jesus, you've been adopted as a child of God. His purposes for you might walk you through a time of hardship. He might walk you through the valley of the shadow of death. But you should be comforted to know that the Lord does not leave you. But when's it all going to be plain? When will we see the distinction that says it's worth it to follow God? When will we see that opposing God is deadly? Chapter 4. Point number three, repent to avoid God's judgment. Point number three is repent to avoid God's judgment. Look at 4.1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Why should you care what God thinks of you? Because God's opinion of you is the only opinion that really matters. 
whether you sit here as a Christian or a non-Christian this morning, believe that God will judge the wicked. We saw the concept of fire used in chapter 3 of this book. And there, the picture was of Jesus coming and refining his people. Is fire a good thing or a bad thing? It just depends, doesn't it? Fire can be a wonderful thing. Refining silver, refining gold, giving you something to roast marshmallows over. But you know, fire is not always a positive experience. And the Bible here speaks of a fire that consumes, that destroys, that burns and leaves nothing but ash behind. And here in chapter 4, God makes it plain that he is sending his holy fire to judge the wicked. And they will be destroyed. God promises that all the arrogant, all the evildoers, all who do not surrender to God, they will all be burned like straw. God gives us a picture of that judgment in Revelation 20. If we read 11 through 15, the Bible says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away. By the way, how much glory is it that makes earth and sky go whoosh? And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What's the destiny for those who oppose God? What is the destiny for those whose names are not in God's book of remembrance? It's the wrath of God. Those who oppose God will be judged. They will suffer the fire of eternal hell. How does that happen? Revelation tells us about two sets of books of remembrance. One set of books and one book, right? You have one or the other. One book is the book of life. And that's the record of every person who is under the grace of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The other books are the record of every individual's deeds. And there's a judgment. If God judges you or me or anybody else based on our deeds, we're lost. And it's because we have all fallen short of God's perfection. Only those whose names are in the book of life only those who have gotten under God's grace in Jesus Christ avoid the proper punishment that we deserve for not being what God commands. Malachi pointed out that people acted like following God was useless. 
because they didn't see God punishing the wickedness of men. And God says to those folks, a day is coming. In the future, when God will bring the fire of his judgment, and on that day those who have refused God's mercy will face God's wrath. Repent to avoid that wrath. What about those who are under God's grace? What are they going to experience? Last point, four. Look forward to eternal joy. <laughs> Look forward to eternal joy. Look at verses 2 and 3. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under, your, under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, so what about those who have chosen to fear God? What about those who have served God faithfully? What about, what about those who are forgiven by God for their sin? They are going to be rewarded. This should make you really happy. The sun of righteousness will rise over those who are in God's mercy and it will bring healing. There will be a sunrise on that day that heals you completely. I even think this is bigger than physical healing. There is a perfecting healing coming to the forgiven from God. Our physical bodies and our physical scars are going to be healed when God gives us brand new eternal resurrection bodies. Looking forward to that? And God's going to bring healing for the scars that people can't see. You got any of those too? We've all been hurt, haven't we? We've all got regrets. Got any memories you wish you could pull out of your brain? We've all experienced pains. And God says, I'm bringing healing to you. And on that day, on that day of judgment, on that day of glory that follows, God is going to heal his children of every last one of our hurts inside and out. And then what are we going to do? God says the forgiven, the healed, are going to go out leaping for joy. Be honest. When's the last time you leapt for joy? And I know some of you, and I know it's been a while. I believe you. The picture is that of a, of a little calf just jumping out of the stall. Have you ever seen little animals just frolicking and playing? Can you imagine having that kind of freedom and happiness and joy in a body that doesn't hurt anymore to just bounce around and roll around and rejoice in perfect pleasure? We're going to run, we're going to jump, we're going to rejoice. All of the sorrow that we have ever felt or faced will be lifted and all the pain that you've ever experienced will be nothing but a dim memory that can never hurt you again. And we will live in joy. Why is this going to be so joyous? For the forgiven, a day is coming when God will wipe away every last tear from our eyes. 
but restoration from sorrow is not all. On the day that God does this, we will for the first time ever be fully sinlessly in the presence of the Lord. That's what we're created for, friends. We were created to experience the glory of God. We were created to find joy in the glory of God. And on that day which is coming, we are finally going to experience the joy of the glory of God without us darkening it by the warping presence of our sin. Do you know how good that is? We are going for the first time ever to be so flooded with joy that we can't imagine one ounce greater happiness, greater peace, greater meaning, or greater contentment. God is giving it all to those under his grace. God describes a time following the destruction of the wicked when his people are going to be healed and glorified and when we will leap and dance for joy and the joy that the children of God have on that day, the day when God judges the wicked, the day when God rewards his children, that day, that joy that we have, that is going to be so much bigger, so much greater that it will completely overwhelm any sense of any pain or hurt you ever experienced in this life. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction... Stop there. Do you think of your life as just a light, momentary affliction? That's what an eternal thinker thinks. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Which do you want, light and momentary or an eternal weight? See the difference? Beyond all comparison, Paul says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Those words perfectly encapsulate what you and I need to think as we look over Malachi's words from 3.13 to 4.3. Yes, life is hard. I know about that. Yes, it can hurt. I know about that. And no, I'm not going to pretend for you that following Jesus is going to make everything in your life go smooth because it won't. But I will say this to you. Those who are not willing to follow God are going to be judged by God. Those who follow God are going to be rewarded by God. Listen to me. The punishment of the wicked is going to be so great as to nullify all the good things they think they have in this life. Because can you imagine being in hell and say, but at least I had a really good meal that one night? It doesn't work, does it? In fact, in hell I think you will hate that meal thinking it was one more step to where I am now. But the reward of the children of God is going to be so great as to overwhelm all of the pain that any of us have ever suffered. You're going to have so much joy that when you look back and you have any memory at all of whatever pain you may have had, it will not cause you pain, but it will be one more sweet step to where you are in the glory and joy presence of God. So what's the solution to a hard life where it doesn't look like justice is being done or that following God is worth the cost? 
look to eternity. See that God will reward his children and will punish those who reject him. Count the eternal cost and you're going to find that fearing God and honoring God's name and coming to Jesus and being under his grace, that's worth anything it might cost in this life. Now, again, I'm not saying, by the way, I feel like I'm painting the picture like following God is all sorrow, all bitterness, all the time. It's not, actually. God often fills the hearts of his children with joy at knowing him, of being God's treasured possession. And that joy of, of knowing God, of worshiping God, can be, can be fulfilling and thrilling and soul-satisfying. And it is worth more than anything you can find in this life. Have you guys noticed there's joy in being a believer? I sure hope so. But even when we suffer in this world, if we have our eyes on the Lord, we can have a peace and an inner joy that tells us we still wouldn't do anything to let go of the glory and the joy that is set before us. Is following God worth it? If all you have is a fallen world to judge by, you might be confused. But if you see God's promises for eternity, you'll know that following God leads to eternal reward. So Christians, be encouraged. Let the world's darkness drive you to desire God's justice. Remember, even in your hardship, that God remembers you. Know that God will judge. Rejoice in the hope of eternal joy. And if you don't know the grace of God in Jesus yet, I tell you today, you can have the forgiveness of God Repent before it's too late. Believe that you need forgiveness. Believe that Jesus came to pay for your sin through his death and then he rose from the grave. Cry out to Jesus, have mercy on me. Surrender your very life to Jesus and you will become a forgiven child of God who's destined for a joy that will show you that following God is totally, totally worth it. Let's bow together and pray. Lord God, here we are, a people who need desperately to have eyes set on eternity. We need you, O oh Lord our God, to show us the truth of your word and remind us that you have indeed proved to us that you're worth following. Give us hope. Give us comfort. Give us joy. And God, I know this. I know that there are people in this room who have pains and hurts could be overwhelming. Please, God, remind them there's hope and there's joy. God, save souls, shape Christians. Let us rejoice in the Savior. That's our prayer in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.